retire. When, when that music starts, I feel like I'm back in the 1980s. I'm going to be joined by my guest, Stephen Feldman, in a second here. He's the founder of Wealthion. As you know, we talked last week. Uh, but Steve and I grew up in that era. So uh, I was doing push-ups in a parking lot somewhere in Hempstead, Long Island, to music like that. And now here I am trying to offer out some investment advice to people. So it's been a long road, Mr. Feldman, from Spit. You remember Spit and Uncle Sam's? You grew up out of Long Island. Yeah, I've, I've looked forward to the day of seeing you in the picture with the gravity boots doing the upside down sit-ups. I, I used to do push-ups in the parking lot outside of my burgundy red Camaro before I entered the disco. Okay, how about that? It's a disco. So, all right. So I'm mortified and embarrassed, but you can call us at 928-436-6624. So that's 92 the Mooch. This is Speak Up with Anthony Scaramucci. And I'm I'm joined again by my very dear friend. And 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 what I love about him, like me, we're working last day of the trading year, last day of the year. Everyone else is on vacation. Steve and I are here working. Okay, so I do love that about him. Uh, but Steve, as you know, is the founder of Wealthion. He also created something called uh, GBI. Prior to that, 23 years as an investment banker, uh, but also as a real estate person, real estate developer, a principal uh, deployment agent, uh, and years and years ago, uh, an attorney at Skadden Orb. So, so Steve is sort of the polymath friend that we all need to have that we could potentially cheat off of in school. Uh, but unfortunately, we did not go to law school together. But as I mentioned last week on last week's show, he did help me with my spreadsheets when I was a real estate investment banking associate uh, back in the day. 1989, Steve. Well, right, so yeah, we're really, really dating ourselves. Okay. I told you that. Somebody pass me the Geritol. Could you pass me the Geritol, please? Um, but Mr. Feldman, thank you for joining us again. Um, I, I think we want to take some calls, right? I mean, it's the last day of the year. Uh, let's take some calls. You can email us. You can fire in a call. Uh, we're taking questions. I can actually start with some email questions if uh, if people are cool with that. I want to. All right, here's one here. An early seed investor, as an early seed investor in the BlackRock ETF, do you think the ETF approval by the SEC will be a buy the rumor, sell the news event, or buy the rumor, buy the news? Angela from New Zealand. So I'm going to start with that, Steve. I'd like to have you chime in. Uh, as I've mentioned to people, and it's also in a filing, uh, Skybridge Capital was the first money in, the first outside money in, into the BlackRock Bitcoin Trust. And so basically what that trust, it was formed about a year ago, and then there was an application for that trust to be converted into an ETF. Uh, and it's sig the signaling is good. It looks like that ETF is going to happen. Of course, the deadline is January 10th. Uh, the rumor in the marketplace is that ETF will be approved on January 8th. I think the fact that they want to do only cash for these ETFs, Stephen, and only cash, Angela, is a sign uh, that it's actually going to get done. Um, and it just has to do, not to bore people, but there's some technicalities that the SEC is worried about as it relates to money laundering, where people could transfer their illegally garnered Bitcoin into the ETF. The ETF works as almost like a cleansing mechanism for them. Uh, and so they don't want that. So they want cash in and cash out. I think that's an indication that's going to happen. My own guess is that we've already had some sloppy trading in Bitcoin in the month of December. We probably get a modest pop, uh, not the pop that the real Bitcoin maximalists are talking about. Uh, but the real question is, Angela, if you have time and patience, uh, will Bitcoin be higher next year uh, than it is today? I believe it will be because of the supply constraints, the halving, uh, and again, not to bore people, but Bitcoin, the Bitcoin network is spitting out roughly 900 coins a day. Uh, sometime in April, uh, it will be reduced from 900 coins a day to 450. And so every time that that has happened, it's caused some serious price appreciation in Bitcoin. I'm going to turn it over to Steve. He's a, uh, like me, he's a traditional investor that's always looking for new things and new ideas. What say you, Steve, related to Angela's question? 
first of all, I'm impressed that anybody from New Zealand is watching the show. God bless. Um, you, you know, there's an analog in the gold business, although gold was in business for thousands of years, and then GLD was created. And GLD became just another increase of the democratization of something that was not easy to buy, sell, own. And so you created, I think, a bit of a floor under the gold price because investors were looking at this as any other asset class. If it got cheap, they'll buy more. If it's expensive, they'll sell it. And so, you know, Bitcoin, the trick of Bitcoin is for it to actually become a liquid currency. That's the goal, right? To have it be money, not just a, a speculative asset. And I think this is an important step in the journey. I'm, I'm never, I'm very loath to predict prices, but I would say if you're looking for something in the crypto space that has, uh, is becoming institutionalized, which isn't going to go out of business, this is the one. Bitcoin is now going to separate itself from all the others, all the other, uh, all the other coins and cryptos. It'll start to continue to establish itself. It'll end up in retail brokerage accounts more because people didn't want to open up a Coinbase account. But if they have a brokerage account, they can buy this easily and it's liquid. It's just adding more and more to the fact that it becomes a stable, reliable, alternative asset. And I think it bodes very, very well. Does that turn the price from 40,000-ish to 80,000-ish? You know, I don't know. I don't know the answer to that. But I think it takes it from 40,000 to zero, takes the zero off the table. Well, I think it's well said. And if, if, you, if you have interest in this stuff, what got me into Bitcoin was actually Professor Neil Ferguson's book, The Ascent of Money. Uh, uh, once I read that book and I understood what money was in our societies, it became clear to me that Bitcoin was going to have some relevance to us as a store of value. Uh, let's see if there's another question here. Uh, recommend a better book on economics and capitalism and freedom, freedom by Milton Friedman. And so I'm going gonna, I'm gonna to go with uh, The Psychology of Money by Morgan Housel. And uh, for those of you that know, I have a, I have a, a podcast called Open Book. Uh, it's sort of a hobby of mine, which is growing into a nice uh, sort of cottage industry for me. I interview authors once a week. And uh, Morgan is a dear friend. He's written uh, two books, uh, The Psychology of Money and Same as Ever, which is his new book. But The Psychology of Money has sold four and a half million books. It came out about two years ago. And the central thesis of what Morgan is saying is very similar to a Buffett thesis or Milton Friedman. You buy great businesses and you hold on to those great businesses and you don't let the fear mechanisms in your personality juke you out of those businesses. So uh, psychology of money would be one for me. Stephen, do you have a recommendation? So um, I'll go a little more aggressive. Um, this is old school. Uh, Adam Smith, Wealth of Nations. You really couldn't understand how it all started. By the way, it's less than 500 This is pages. why I wanted to cheat off the guy in law school, but unfortunately we weren't in law school together. All right, go ahead. Wealth of Nations, go ahead. Yeah, there was a moment, not to be too eggheadish, but there was a moment in time that all wealth was the king's wealth. And then America got created. And then we had to basically start from scratch. And how do you pay labor? How do you accumulate capital? How do you make loans? How does what's government's role versus uh, the individual role? What's how do you tax? So if you really want to know how it all started, that's the book to read. And if you want to know how it all blew up, go read The Great Crash of 1929 by John Kenneth Galbraith, Gale, which will tell you all the stories about the enormous errors of politicians, pundits and financiers that led up to 1929. And then how it was botched for another six or seven years uh, in trying to get out of 1929 through the Depression. Uh, two of my most favorite books. And by the way, I don't think anyone's going to read Wealth of Nations, but I'm sure there's a lot of summaries that are on the Internet. You know, just put in Wealth of Nations PDF summary, less than 10 pages in AI, and you'll get the gist. Well, I mean, you know, see, that's really the Scaramucci side of the speak up because, of course, I would be reading the uh, the the brief, the three page brief, Stephen. All right, let's go to the next. But I, I think it's important um, that we just address what Stephen is saying. Uh, the country was made great through the forces of the free market. 
and through the forces of capitalism. And of course, all of us know what the invisible hand is. Uh, Smith just makes the reference in the book that uh, you have this sort of working mechanism because of all of our mutuality of self-interest uh, that you bring things into alignment and things become more efficient from a capital allocation perspective. And so uh, let's go to Brett, Kyle. Anthony, can you talk a little bit about Algo for a minute? I've been following you for a while with this. So, uh, and for Stephen's benefit, there's a layer one security token that was developed by Silvio McCallie, a MIT professor in cryptology, uh, a fantastic individual, brilliant guy. He won the Turing Award in 2012, which is effectively the Nobel Prize for computer programming. Um, Algorand is a layer one token on the blockchain, uh, which I think has arguably the best technology. Uh, if it's not the best, it's in the top two or three. Um, and I wrote a book about it, The Genius of Algorand, just to explain it to people. I am still a large investor in Algorand, Brett. Uh, bad news for me is I think I bought the Algorand at a dollar. It went to $2.50. I didn't sell any. It's trading at about 23 or 24 cents today. And so near term, I've lost some money. Uh, but I do like the technology and I do like the early adoption. Now, where Algorand has misstepped, and I'll be brief on this, is they did not develop the ecosystem that things like Ethereum or Solana developed. Um, is it too late for Algorand? Well, some people think it is. The skeptics believe that it is. I, I, I don't see it that way. I, I see the technology as being so good that there are quarters of the blockchain space where this will be eventually adopted. I just want to point out to some of the people that are older listening, uh, we all worked on Microsoft's operating system in the 80s and the 90s, early parts of the 2000s. Uh, Microsoft's system was inferior to Apple's system in terms of an operating perspective, but they had market dominance and market share. And so that sometimes happens in technology where you could have something that isn't as good as the other thing, uh, but it does better from a adoption perspective. Uh, so Algorand I see um, as something that could develop. Remember, Apple was niche and then look at what happened to Apple. And so for those reasons, I'm not selling my Algorand. I just think the technology is so good. Uh, okay. I'm not gonna- Can I, go ahead, can I weigh in? Can I weigh in for a second here, which is, listen, I, I don't know how much the Wealthion audience knows about Algorand. Thank you, Brett, Kyle, A, you know, for asking the question. Anthony is an expert. I am not. But I, I do want to tie it a bit into mainstream finance and some psychology. Um, you know, I, I just looked it up on uh, CoinMarketCap. I, I didn't, I'm not too familiar with it. It's a 24 cents trades at 24 cents and the last 24 hour trading volume is $128 million. And that means, you know, almost 500 million of these coins traded in the last 24 hours. So what, what's good and bad about that? You know, what's, what's bad is that, you know, we, people aren't really investors so much. I can't believe all those people understand this coin the way Anthony understands the coin, but there's a little bit of an infection of gambling that has come into the crypto space, the option space, the market space. And um, people have to be understand that. That's part of what's going on here. People don't know what they're investing in, but if it goes up, I love it. And the best investors in the world are going to be able to differentiate those two. Uh, Anthony and I were joking before we got on this call that these are hard public markets for people like me who have private market investment investing backgrounds where cash flows mattered and, you know, leverage mattered. And now, you know, does it really matter as much to people? I don't know. I mean, you look at these crazy multiples and some of these stocks and, you know, and they're still going up and it's hard for us to just say, okay, that's good value. We're betting on almost market psychology and gambling psychology as much as we're bet or greater fool theory or momentum, which is really anathema for someone like me who says, okay, what's the yield on, you know, what's the yield on, you know, cash flow yields. So it's a scary time to be an investor. And, you know, I, for those who are intrigued by algo based on what Anthony said, understand that if you don't understand it, you're probably just gambling. And, but that's okay. Just don't put enough money in, then it matters. Uh, it's well said. So if there, 
or live callers out there. We appreciate all these emails coming in. 928-436-6624. Just dial us up. Uh, We're here. Last trading day of the year. Uh, We'll take your call. We'll do our best to answer your questions. Why don't we take a few more of these email questions? And I want to flip over to our predictions, Steve. Uh, which we were supposed to get to last week. Yeah, we made that of course, you and I ranting and raving, we never got to them. Okay, Buffett says that being long on on the stock market is a bet on America. This is from Barbara from New York. Do we agree? Do you agree? Stephen, why don't you go first on that one? And then I'll, I'll chime in as well. Oh, you know, you, are you allowed to criticize Buffett on the internet? I, I'm not positive. Listen, a bet on America, you know, first let's define America. Sorry if I'm going to get too pointy headed on you guys. Um, you know, are you betting on America or are you betting on capital, American style capitalism? Uh, if it's the latter, American style capitalism, yes, that's what's being long the stock market is a very smart bet on American style capitalism, which uh, apropos to my previous comment, has creates capital markets where people don't necessarily invest based on fundamentals. They invest on, you know, the what I'll call the financial industrial complex, where everyone says you got to be long stocks. You're bombarded by advertisements. You're, you have a fear of missing out. You, uh, whether it's M- Madison Avenue or the Joneses, you better be long that stock market. And then you are relying on the S&P, which kicks out the Woolworths and the Sears and the crummy companies. So you can only stay in the best ones and it's market weighted. So you get the best of the best. And so seven companies make up all of the return for the S&P in large part each year, not just the magnificent seven this year. And then you're betting on the fact that those companies, and this sounds a little nasty, those companies send their lobbyists to government and support politicians who support their positions on pharma, on regulation, on trade, on employee rights, and all of those things. So yes, it is a bet on American style capitalism. And I don't never bet it. I would never bet against American style capitalism because that's what America is about. Uh, But my a little bit, you know, less positive, I would say is, you know, that America comes at a cost to other parts of America. We're a divided country. We have a lot of parts of the population that because of capitalism don't get respected as much as they might. People who are poor or old who don't participate in capitalism in the same way, they're in America too, and they're getting the other end of the stick. And I wish there was a bit better balance, but you know, that's not for this, that's not for this interview, that's for sure. Well, you know, I I I, I want to add so I obviously, you know. There is a divided America and there are has and have nots. And I think that's causing some pain and anxiety in America. Uh, But I think specifically this question, I think what Mr. Buffett is saying is that American capitalism, because of the decentralized nature of the government and the free market, it's regulated, but the broad free market and the culture of risk taking and entrepreneurship in America I think, or the things that Mr. Buffett is talking about. And I will say this, and I want to ask Stephen this question because I'm uh, reflecting on my 35-year career. If every time I was offered a venture capital investment or a seed investment, had I just bought Berkshire Hathaway uh, and put it away and held it, I think, frankly, I would have done better. And so uh, uh, I have a lot of losses, a lot of misfires and things that i thought we're going to be the next Ubers or the next Teslas or whatever they might be. Uh, and I think the, the, the tried and true turtle wins the race is what the mantra of what Mr. Buffett is talking about. But, but Stephen, how do you feel about that? Cause I, I sort of feel like uh, if I just put that money into Berkshire Hathaway, a shares, I, uh, I'd be sitting on more money today. Again, well, we're just talking about the game of investing, you know, I, I wish, I wish if I just had one day's, one day's wisdom of what how how would it all worked out, I would have been a much better investor. If you had put your money in the market in 1929, you would have gotten it back in 1950. So we've been in a golden age of investing where interest rates are gone down. But regardless, back to Buffett and the positive story. If you took every single paycheck, every dollar, and you just put it leverage, you put it long, unleveraged into the stock market, 
closed your eyes. You wouldn't have to pay many, you wouldn't have paid much taxes. You would have had compounded, you've compounded over 35 years. And the stock market is within an inch of a record today. So if you never sold a share, you, of course, you would have done much, 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 much better. You know, the hidden secret of venture capital and private equity are the capital calls and the fact that you're in and out of the investment and you're forced to pay taxes, not because you've made the selection. By the way, I made one tax move this year in the last three days. I took some of the most appreciated names and I donated them. That's I didn't want to pay the tax, but this is a way I could actually save the tax and do what I'm trying to do as I get a little older is be more philanthropic. So I just feel like the being long for these for the Buffett years has been awesome. I mean, obviously we hit a record today. You should have bought it home. Yeah, no, listen, I, I, I hear you. The question though, and we're gonna to get to this question from Andrew Perillo in a second, but the question I have for you, Steve, I can answer it myself, but I'd like to hear your answer is what about the next 50 years? So Buffett got it right. Okay, he said in 1964, I'm just going to get along some high quality stocks, switch them around here and there, and I'm going to get long high quality stocks. And he's had this spectacular run, 60 year run. What about the next 60 years? Is that the right strategy for the next 60 years? Well, at the end of 60 years, it will be completely irrelevant to me because uh, you can't take it with you. But well, well, don't say that because you know. I don't was, say that you're gonna I, you you got offspring, my friend. Don't say I, that. I was I was in business school, and there were back then people actually believed in financial models, capital asset pricing models, equities, unlevered equities should return some uh, premium, some real return over risk-free rates. So. If inflation is not two, but it's three, and uh, treasuries are four, you should get six to seven percent in equities in an index of good companies, compounded without taxes over sixty years. If you put a million away right now, you'd be Buffett in sixty years. Hmm. So, you know, of course, I believe I believe in it. And uh, and by the interesting point, as a guy who runs businesses, I want to make some a, a point which is really something I wish I knew. Companies are not the economy. It's a simple, simple thing that nobody really understands or people don't talk about it. If they understand it, they don't talk about it. When the economy loses jobs, that doesn't mean the company is gonna do bad. The company might be cutting costs, right? So when the, when the country loses jobs, that may mean that a company's expenses are going down. Companies have 15 things that they can do in any economy and basically any in the best companies actually if they when they get through the downturn come out better because if it hurts if it hurts a good company it's killing a small company so you see when you come out of the pandemic these restaurant chains that were able to stay in business they're killing it now because everybody right. else went out of business right. and so when I own a company and I suppose to downsize, that's quote bad for the economy, but it might actually be good for my company because I cut my expenses. Right. And so that's also one of the reasons why we can start to see that if we go into a recession, people are like, oh, a recession, I shouldn't own any stocks. Just have the right names through the recession. Think about who's going to come out of the recession even better because their competitive advantage, you're sitting there with $10 billion of cash. You're going to get through that recession. Well, and I, I think that's a really important point. I, and I think this is something that we worry about because of the way our brains think or linear thinkers. If we're having a bad period of time. We think, OK, that bad period of time is going to continue. Um, but it doesn't. We have a cyclical nature to the world. We have four seasons. The moon comes in and out of phases. Uh, everything about our lives is cyclical. And so at a low point, uh, think like the uh, Buddha or the Dalai Lama, things change. And so you have to be prepared for the, the better times. I, I want to flip over a second because, Steve, this week I got a tremendous amount of comments from people related to your remarks about the S&P, how it's this wonderful culling mechanism. And the reason why it goes up, up into the right, by and large, is that they're taking the bad companies out and they're putting the high-performing companies in. Uh, Andrew's asking a very good question here via YouTube chat. Please comment on the equal weighted S&P 500. What are your thoughts there? Well, first of all, if you had the equal weighted S&P, the S&P wouldn't have been up as much, right? Like that's, right. so what ends up, 
it was very clever. I wish I had invented it. I, there's a million things I wish I had invented it. But the idea that you're you have a tax-free vehicle that culls out bad names, but you don't have to pay the tax when that trade occurs is brilliant. If you own 500 companies and you decided to get rid of the ones that you didn't like in them, you'd have to have some tax ramification and it would start to hinder your return. That's not true when you own an ETF. They do the work for you and you just take the price of the ETF. Very clever technology underneath it. It's actually brilliant. You don't have that in a mutual fund, but you have that in an ETF. So, you know, and then the idea of market weighting them is sort of like letting your winners run. And if you take my theory that people love the winners, they get the momentum, people don't want to miss out. So I got to, I got to own NVIDIA. And so those things will run and then that will pull the market weighted S&P up. You won't get the same result in the S&P 500. So now go back to Buffett. Betting on America means betting on all the things you listed, Anthony, which I believe risk taking, entrepreneurship, ingenuity, you know, working like we did back in the day, 80 hours a week, sleeping on sofas, doing all that thing, which I don't think you find in other countries, not to besmirch them, but that's what you find in our country. So you're now basically getting to bet on the best and the ones who really can win it and really can actually even, they're so big, they can start to even change the playing field. So they'll always win. So that's why that is a better version. I think if you took the seven companies, the Magnificent Seven, out of the S&P, I don't think the S&P would have been up 20%. It would have been up like 5% or some number. I don't, but I don't, I don't know, have the chart in front of me. Yeah, it's, it's, a, a, it's, 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 a little, it's a little higher than that because I looked at it before the show. It's about eight. eight. But, you're, you're, but you're making the right, you're making the right point. And I think this is the thing. It's like... Uh, you know, I, I have a friend of mine, Jonathan Boyer, who runs this analysis called the Forgotten 40. OK, so there's the S&P 50. And as you point out, the seven names, the Magnificent Seven, or maybe there's 10 names now. What about those Forgotten 40? Well, it turns out the Forgotten 40 do well, uh, but they don't do as well as the Magnificent Seven. OK, and the, and the, the point being is what Stephen is making is it's okay sometimes to go with the flow and try not to outsmart yourself. You know, I I have hurt myself in my career by trying to be the smartest person in the room by trying to say, okay, I'm gonna I'm gonna buy the bottom uh, ten. You know, the S and P four ninety to five hundred because uh, that that stuff is cheap and a result of which I'll end up making more money by doing that. But then you're losing out on what everything that Steve just said and also the forces of market momentum. Because remember, you know, one of the greatest things that can happen to a company, Steve, you correct me if I'm wrong, getting into the S&P 500 or getting into the Dow, because now you're forcing all the capital allocators that allocate into these indexes to own pieces of your company. And so, you know, sometimes the trend being your friend uh, doesn't make sense to fight. I agree. And listen, I think and there's also a nice self-reinforcing model here. More and more people are coming to the conclusion that you just had, Anthony. Was it really a good idea for me to put money in venture capital and private equity and individual deals and try to be the smartest person in the room? Maybe it was just better to put the money in the S&P 500 and spend more time with my kids. Now more money goes into the S&P 500, market weighted, more money has to go into NVIDIA. NVIDIA now doesn't trade. Right now, the S&P, uh, the NASDAQ 100 trades at 30 times PE. That has always been, has always portended a bad next year. But it will be offset by all of the people who just got their bonuses or you know, got their raises or now funding their 401ks. And that money is just going into the S&P 500. Well, I mean, the other I mean, the other thing is, I would say, uh, as we're both lamenting about some of our poor choices in venture capital or private equity, there's something about the dream, Steve. <laughs> and, 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 and you know what I'm talking about? There's something about the dream. You know, you want to be, you want to be in the dream business, the dream making, or the uh, dream believing business. I want to, I want to flip us over to these predictions because uh, we posted them, we put them up on the website, wealthy on dot com uh steven wrote these 
And like in the old days, he put my name on it as well. So I want to thank him for that. Okay. But I obviously didn't do any work, but that's fine. Uh, so I'm going to let Steve start out with some of these predictions. I'm going to chime in a little. Uh, these are the 2024 predictions. And in 48 short hours or 72 short hours, 2024 starting, Stephen. So yeah. tell us what's going to happen. Okay. First, I want to, I, I'm, I'm going to do a little wealthy on commercial ask. Um, we're halfway through the show. I hope you're still here. Um, we do read the comments and we are trying in Wealthy on 2.0 to create, you know, make sure we keep the community going. So please give us your our predictions, put your own in there, have some fun. Let's, like Anthony said before, you know, why have I just been long the S&P 500? Because I'm exercising my brain a little bit, trying to beat the crowd. There's a little bit of sport in it for us. We all want to win. Please be in our community. We'd, we'd be grateful to, to you guys. Okay, so I'm going to start with the most lighthearted one. We have serious ones and we have unserious ones. This was a serious one, but I'm, I might have to change it already because I watched a football game this week. I had my Super Bowl prediction, 49ers 31, Ravens 20. Uh, and then I watched the 49ers play the Ravens, and it didn't look like uh, the 49ers should be on the same football field as the Ravens. Uh, but I'm going to stick with it because they have great coaching and they'll try to figure it out. I also like the Dolphins. All right, let's go to one that's more financial. Um, so this one I cheated with with Anthony gave me the head start. So there's a you know, let's let's talk about the markets and what might be a winner. I I'll start out and tell you that I'll combine you know sort of one and three. Remember, the markets and the economy and companies are not all the same thing. We have to decide that we can be in a recession, the S&P can go down, and then one company can outperform. I'm sort of looking for a muted 2024. Uh, I think a lot of the heat and light that we got in 2023 isn't going to recreate itself. I think the news of the rate cuts and AI, I don't know, I can't see anything on the horizon with the exception of, quote, peace. And we'll talk about that. Uh, in a second. I'm not sure how big that dividend will be. So I look for a more muted 2024, but who would be the winner? The one company, and this is Anthony's idea, so I'm cribbing this one from him. He always says I, he cribs from me. Um, I think this AI thing is extraordinary. I'm an, I'm an early adopter. If you ask my companies, I've challenged every manager and every company that I'm involved in with come in, how they're using it and what their plans were. So we're already way ahead of people. We're writing content, we're doing customer service, we're doing a lot of the fraud prevention, all this stuff. We're either doing the AI or using AI companies. If you remember back for people who are not nine, the first AI was Watson. It was IBM's computer and it was gonna beat everybody in a chess match. Somehow they lost the lead. They, I don't know what happened to that company, but Watson still exists. From what I read about IBM, that the whole company is, is sort of, I think they're concocting something in the back room, which is going to put them on the table. They've always traded poorly. They lost their lead. They were the stock. They were NVIDIA. They were NVIDIA, Apple, Microsoft, all in one company when I was growing up. I think they come back. I don't know about valuations or long, but I think they're, you're going to hear their in 12 months. What do you think, Anthony? Yeah, no, I, see, I, it's interesting. So I agree with that because uh, unlike uh, Polaroid or Kodak, uh, they've moved. They made the change, you know, and just to remind people, Kodak actually invented the digital camera. They were the first one. It was like a couple of megapixels and they had a digital camera, but they didn't want to deploy it because they didn't want it to hurt their film business. Uh, but they needed to do it. Remember, Steve Jobs killed the most successful product at that time, the most successful product in Apple's history, the iPod, he killed it. He shot the iPod and he put it in the iPhone. And then people said, well, why did you do that? It was such a successful product. He said, well, if I didn't do it, somebody else was going to do it. And so uh, IBM is, is, is finally, in my mind, moving in a direction. And it still has the CTO of corporate America. You know, you don't get fired. Stephen and I know this. You don't get fired in corporate America if you're using an IBM mainframe or you have using IBM consulting services or IBM related products. And so 
I do, I do think it comes back. You know, I, I, I want to say something to you, Steve, because we're going to do a show in a few weeks after the World Economic Forum. I've been t- attending that forum for the last 17 years, and I find it is the best prediction mechanism. Well, let me just tell people this quickly. Yeah, when I got there in 2007, uh, the economy was booming, and the consensus among the 3,000 delegates was we were going to grow as far as the eye could see, and the Fed had solved all problems. 2008 then came. We had the worst financial services crisis, the worst economic crisis since the Depression. Uh, and then when I got back there in 2009, January of 2009, I was told that we were going to fall into the earth. The earth was opening. All of us were going to fall into it and melt at the center of the earth. And of course, we, we started the greatest bull market in history. In 2016, uh, the consensus there was that Hillary Clinton was going to win the presidency. No need to have the election. She was winning the presidency. And of course, she lost the presidency, but that was okay. 2020, right before the advent of COVID, those 3,000 delegates said, well, you know, Donald Trump is going to get reelected president. 100% that's going to happen. Last year, and my good friend Bill Cohen, who has written for Vanity Fair, writes for Puck now, uh, he interviewed me last February. He said, well, what's your prediction for 2023? I said, well, well, Bitcoin's going up. He said, Bitcoin's going up. Why do you think that? I said, there were 3,000 people at the World Economic Forum who said, Bitcoin's dead. It is in the ground, dead, get the casket and the cremation urn. But, you know, and then Bitcoin went up. And so I guess what I want to ask you before we get into these other predictions, when you get this group think around something, okay, it's usually wrong, right? And why? Why, Stephen? Why is it usually wrong? Uh, well, go back. By the way, the book I recommended about the crash of 1929 would tell you about the pundit class. Okay, so this is the crash of 29 by John Kenneth Galbraith. Right. Yeah. So, you know, take take a read because it'll talk about the psychology of pundits. And you know, listen, there's not a lot of. Let, let me tie this into Wealthion for a minute. A little commercial for Wealthion. We're trying really hard not to give conventional wisdom. You, we, we arguably are a competitor to CNBC and we're trying to do different. We're trying to get into people's brains to have them think, challenge them a little bit. And sometimes the comments are a little nasty and, you know, but we're going to take it. Um, the whole idea is to stand. I'm not a contrarian, anybody who knows me, but I have an, ex, I have a great ability to stand away from the crowd. My genetic code actually says if someone, everybody agrees with it, it, they could be right, but I'm not going to take it as gospel. That's for sure. Because there's the madness of crowds and the, the desire to fit in is universal. And it doesn't just stand behind the people behind Donald Trump or religious leaders. It stands on all the people who graduated from Harvard Business School and decided to show up at Davos, the World Economic Forums and those other things. There's a group think. Um, You know, I think back about um, the the CEO of Citibank who said, you know, when the markets are moving, I have to dance. And I don't think he believed for a second it was going to end well, but he had he had no choice. He was damned if he did and be damned if he don't. And so you want to fit in with the cool kids at Davos? You can't be a firebrand. You can't be say something against it. So it ends up happening. It starts to blend the edges, shave away, shave away, shave away, shave away, until you only have one point. Of view. And Buffett talks about that with boardrooms. He says, you know, you 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 got the board seat. They're paying you probably an ungodly sum for your quarterly arrival at the board meeting. And so you want to fall in line as opposed to really help the company. So it's just, it's just interesting. Can I tell you something interesting and anecdote that yeah. you personal anecdote? I was on a I was on a dissident board. And uh, I was John Paulson was the shareholder and I went on a gold company board as a dissident. And a lot of people told me, if you do it, you'll never serve on a board again. And to which I said, there's no board that I want to sit on, which is a country club board. If unless I'm doing something and the company was mismanaged, 
Right. And we ended up cleaning it up and selling it. And by the way, everybody who came in on the day we I came in and the day I left made 100%. And by the way, P.S., I still got criticism. Should have been 200%. Sold too low. Right. Well, yeah. No, I, and listen, I mean, there's no there's no pleasing people in the... In no the, uh, so in what the, would have been easier was for me to go to Russell Reynolds, get on some boards, vote yes on everything, be popular, agree with everybody. Oh, he's such a good board member. He's so agreeable. You know, all of the time that I've sort of, in my mind, I felt like I've been a bit, you know, disliked is because I wasn't agreeing. And the louder you get, the more you put your job at risk. And so you end up just going along with the crowd. So let's, let's shift gears abruptly, if you don't mind. And I agree with everything that you just said. I want to talk Wait, about we that. have a prediction. We have, I don't know if you could read your chat, but there's a prediction. I'm reading your chat. Okay. Yep. Okay, Eric is calling in with a, a prediction, right? Is that correct? Let, let, let's take the call. This is Eric. He's a host guy. Eric, how are you? What's this going is on? Eric. This is Eric. Yeah, this is the. Uh, I'm here calling in. I don't have a prediction, but I have a question because you were talking about all time highs, right? And it's where a lot of people that I've been talking to, they're concerned. Hey, it's, it's going to be January. We're at all time highs. Should I be buying right now? Because, you know, I'm going to get that bonus. Like you said, I'm going to get a tax refund. I'm going to get something. I've got 401k allocations to put in. It's the year starts and I have to put money in. Do I really want to be buying at all-time highs when, you know, people are like, I don't, I don't feel that great about buying up here. What do, what do you say to that, to that question? Anthony, why don't you start? Well, I'll start because I, I was for, you know, a long period of time a financial analyst uh, before I moved into being a registered investment advisor, I always told clients this, and I think this works, is if you're that nervous, you you, you, you put in half or you take a third uh, and you just, through your discipline, you put in some amount of money because we can't time these markets. Uh, uh, Charlie Ellis, who's uh, turning 90, uh, has a great memoir out about his life, and he reminds people, if you're out of the markets for the 10 best days of the year, uh, you lost the entire return uh, from the equity markets. And so nobody can time them. Uh, no one can time them at least consistently and successfully. Uh, otherwise, you know, you, we'd have our first trillionaire already. So my, my thing is, yes, markets are expensive. But you know what? In a hindsight test, okay, they're going to be less expensive than you think. And, you know, Stephen and I are old enough to remember the Dow 30,000 book, James Glassman wrote a book in 1999 when the Dow was at like four or 5,000 saying that the Dow was going to 30,000 and everyone laughed at him and laughed at the book. And so the Dow's at 37,000 right now. Well, you say, okay, it took 25 years to get there, but you know what? The people that stayed in there uh, got started, uh, weren't worried about market highs or lows are the ones that did the best. And so, that's my recommendation, Eric. I don't know if Steve wants to add anything to that, but that's the tried and true answer. Uh, this, this is where, you know, your perspective and your position in life changes. And if you are 25 years old and you can put the money away and never look at it again for 15, 20 years, you shouldn't even worry. You know, it's interesting. I have 529 plans for my children and the money went in automatically and I never looked Honestly, I never looked till they went to college and it did just fine. And I bought at a lot of highs, but I don't think that is modern portfolio theory today. And it's also not where people are in life. We have an allocation. I think the stock market is, is, um, is rich. And so if you wanted to be fully invested, you could either invest with some sort of mix, you know, for mine, you, you know, I'm in the gold business. So, um, for mine, it's, very, a little bit of bonds, a lot of cash for opportunistic investing, and, and then try, try to get the best companies in the stock market, and then just close my eyes. Um, the other way of doing it, as Anthony said, is a sort of dollar cost average because we are psychological, and you don't want to have that psychological burden of being on the top. Um, the other thing that people do, which is I don't think is a terrible idea, it's not market timing, but you know, you, you, saw, you decide you're going to put it out during the year. Almost every year, there's some sort of correction, 10 to 15 to 20 percent. There's always a moment where there's a buying opportunity. A signal flare doesn't go up to say when it is. 
but I guarantee there'll be a day when the market is cheaper as today and then push the chips in. Um, you know, I think Buffett, we've right. mentioned a lot, you know, sitting in cash is, because oh, I don't get any money in cash. Well, you get the cash return. So now they call that four, four and a half percent, but you have the option value of moving that cash into something that feels cheap. So I think about it that way. So uh, not that I get big bonuses anymore, uh, but I am, uh, I'm going to sort of allocate it, stay a little bit in cash, and then take the cash and opportunistically. I like your point about the 529s because that's one of the things I was thinking about. Because at my age group, I've got all the you know friends that are parents that have kids now that are zero to five. So they're thinking about that 15 year time frame. And and like you said earlier, you could buy at the top decades ago. 15 years later, you haven't even made the money back. So I think there is some fear of like if I start now, I'll have lost money over the next 15 years. So yeah. maybe maybe. Uh, the dollar cost average is the way to go. My other question for you guys is the classic 60-40 model that everyone keeps talking about, that 40% bonds in a world where, you know, bonds, bonds have gotten crushed a little bit here. Do you still, do you still want to hear that 60-40 as, as a common baseline benchmark phrase from people, or would you think about it very differently? Uh, I'll, I'll start on this one. I've, I've never been a 60-40 person because uh, I, I actually, undergrad, I was uh, I studied economics and I, I, I fundamentally, sometimes knowing too much is, is a little bit against you. I think the government just runs negative interest rates forever. We have $34 trillion of debt and there's, we, we don't live in a, in, a, in a country that can tolerate taxes or massive cuts in spending. So there's only one way out. And the one way out is through negative interest rates. And that means for me, owning bonds just erodes my, it's like basically running in place or losing money. Uh, so that's why, by the way, that's why I have a big allocation to gold because gold actually is in my version, my is, is my version of the bond. I don't get the income, but I'm, I'm, I don't need the income that bad. I have a salary and a bonus. I'm not retired yet. So I don't care about the income. I care about keeping up with inflation something that goes up when gold goes up over time. And if God forbid something goes horrible, I have some wealth insurance in that gold bar. Otherwise, I'd rather just take the risk. Stocks usually outpace inflation, create a real return, or those companies go out of business. Tying me all the way back to that comment about the S&P 500 and capitalism, which is if you can't make that return, the company goes out of business, in which case I get to go into NVIDIA. So a long-winded way of saying I've never believed in the 60-40 mix. And you, if you think $34 trillion is going to get paid off with today's value of dollars, I, I don't think you understand economics and so or this country. And so that's why I don't, I would, I, I'm so against the 60-40 mix. Unless you really need income in retirement and you have a low tax bracket. By the way, I forgot to add, I live in New York City. So every dollar of interest I get in that in the 40. I give half to the government. So I'm really quite against the 60-40 mix. By the way, Eric, I know you have lots of long, small children, so lots of 529s. Go long only and don't look. Don't look for 18 years. Yeah, that, that was the plan. The plan was simply like starting Jan 1 because they're upping the, the, the amount you can put in starting Jan 1. I was like, all right, I'm going to start funding five kids worth of 529s and and I'm hoping it at least will be up at least 1% 15 to 20 years later. So I, I agree with you. It's going to be all long, long stocks, see what happens. But my last question, then I'll go because I'm not the host of the show, you know, the Mooches. But, but when you said last week you, you got a duffel bag full of gold and you were just hoping the cops didn't kill you and take it all, how much gold did you have? Was oh, it like pounds? How much gold? Because okay, so I was thinking, do I need to do that? Do I need a duffel bag to get some gold? Eric, I, you know, I know you and I know each other, so this is, this is like a, a freebie. You, you know, you look like a pretty strong guy. One chocolate bar of gold, that's a kilo. That's the same size. That's, that's today, that's $70,000, and it weighs a kilo, 2.2 pounds. So it was a heavy bag. It was, it was not an insignificant amount of kilos in there, and it was quite heavy, manageable, but I, I keep saying to myself, I've told that story a hundred times. I know if I was in a, back then they would dial cars. If I was in a dial car accident, seriously, I wasn't going to the hospital and that bag was gone. Remember Anthony, those gold, those green Goldman Sachs duffel bags? I, 
I yeah, I'm embarrassed to tell you, I still have one actually. First, uh, I, I want. I'm one. a little bit. I'm a little bit of a. I'm a little David bit of a, a hoarder. David Solomon, if you're listening, I lost my Goldman duffel bag and I have it back. I mean, I did spend 23 years, 23 years there. It's funny. I was I was actually at the TSA heading on a trip and I saw somebody with that bag and I was like, oh, my God, they're still, you know, using these bags at Goldman, you know. But, you know, listen, Eric, I mean, these are great questions and these are questions that uh, everybody has. And unfortunately, at various points in my life, Eric, I shot in the dark. You know, I didn't uh, I didn't have a financial advisor to give me the advice that I needed, you know, and and the truth be told, when I was a financial advisor, I was like the shoemaker. You know, my shoes looked terrible. Everyone else's shoes were well tended to. And I was trying to outsmart the market or outguess people or and things like that. And, and you don't need to do that. And I think Stephen's point about uh, sometimes knowing too much is a curse. It's probably just better to be somewhat formulaic about these things, uh, particularly when it comes to your kids. That's, you know, something I would just point out. And I, you know, I think Stephen can reflect upon this as well. I just did that for my kids. What you're about to do for yours, Eric, it worked out better than my personal portfolio. Just that simple formula. <laughs> That's great. That's great. No, uh, I, I appreciate that. Thanks for letting me jump in and uh, keep up the good show. I'll keep watching the rest of it from here. Happy New Year. Happy New Year, man. Happy New Year. All right, Stephen, I want to go to a few of these election. uh, Oh, yeah. uh, Okay, because I, you know, listen, I mean, you you have a great prediction here about the election. Okay, you've got uh, you've got a potential conviction of a former president. You have a potential health care, health scare of a current president. Uh, Take us through uh, prediction number six, 2024 presidential election wasn't i you have 11 more days in the white house than i do so i'm more interested in what you have to say but okay here's a little i'm mean, wait a whole lot of you, you didn't go on tour once you didn't have like one tour in the white you've been to the white house yeah actually believe it or not i have a photo i'm not going to show it of me next to a wax sculpture of nixon like my arm around and my sister so i'm aging myself right, well, there there you go by the way and that the the nixon white house was run down and trust me, the Trump White House also run out. They got to do a better job with these public housing. I mean, I'm just letting you know. I mean, these these places are not what they look like on the outside. Air Force right, we're we're, we're going to go. Thing. We're going to go through this one quickly because we have a caller. Um, All right. Okay. So here's here's my let's let's talk about the Democrats for a second. Um, you know, we're we're beginning to get this little bit of a I get this Jimmy Carter vibe out of Biden. I'm not even talk about whether it's deserved or not. I'm not. I'm not going to opine on whether his policies on everything from infrastructure to middle class to immigration to Israel and Ukraine are. I don't know. I'm not saying. I just know that he's polling poorly, and uh, and a lot of his coalitions are cracking. And so I think the Democratic Party. There's a lot of hand wringing, you know. And I think that uh, whether. If any sort of event, it could be a medical event, it could be a, a bad fall or a slip, creates a narrative that allows the Democratic Party to gin up the machine and the pressure for Biden to step down for a prearranged winning ticket. And in my opinion, that winning ticket is a combination of um, Gretchen Whitmer and Jay Pritzker. Jay Pritzker comes with a billion dollars of his own money. So you don't have to fundraise and he'll be able to go fund. There'll obviously be a lot of fundraising, but he'll be able to bridge any funding gap. You move down the youth curve a bit. You uh, move up the popularity curve a bit. And now you have a clean shot to run if Trump is the nominee on age, sanity, policies, uh, demeanor, Again, not commenting on any of Trump's policies, just commenting on the way Americans seem to vote. I remember back when people were voting for George Bush and I was listening to some of the people say, you know, here's a guy that I want to have a beer with. And I just feel like in American politics, getting those two people on the ticket, any excuse to get them on the ticket, I think that's the winning ticket. Uh, There may be others, but I think that's my prediction for the Democratic Party. Let's take our call. Uh, This is Tyler. Tyler, can you hear us in the great state of Missouri? 
Yes, yes. Thank you for taking my question, y'all. I greatly appreciate it. Um, I'm going to keep it quick. I don't want to take too much time from y'all. But um, have you personally looked into cryptocurrency nodes, such as nodes that allow you to earn passive revenue from the transactions on a network? And if not, I strongly recommend looking into Vulcan Forge, the peer token, PYR. Okay, well, I... You know, full disclosure to everybody, Tyler, I own a lot of Vulcan Forge. I was an early investor uh, in Jamie's company. And we have at SkyBridge uh, an Elysium node, uh, which basically earns us money. And so, again, for Stephen's benefit, what these nodes do is they confirm the transactions. And then the network itself actually gives you a return as a result of that. And so... uh, uh, Tyler, I have a lot of that. That's a gaming token. It's a utility token in the uh, Web3 gaming space. And so obviously, I'm quite bullish on that. I also have a, uh, uh, we also run a Bitcoin node at Skybridge. It's a little bit less lucrative to run a Bitcoin node than it is a gaming uh, utility token node. But uh, I'm with you on these nodes. Um, and they don't, you know, it, again, not to bore everybody. Uh, who may not be interested in nodes, but they don't take a lot of time or energy to set up, frankly. So uh, um, I appreciate you calling in and uh, happy, happy New Year to you, sir. Thank you, Mooch. Have a blessed New Year. Thank you, Stephen. Happy New Year, Tyler. All right, so a- Anthony, I am not going to let you leave. We have just a couple of minutes left. Last show, yeah. 2023, we're ushering it out. You you obviously, you're like Zelig. You show up in lots of places that I wouldn't expect. I didn't expect you to show up at the White House and they show you up to be like a crypto maven. God bless you, by the way. I am super impressed. Who's going to be the next president of the United States? It's a really good question, man. I, 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 I'm going to say something people are not going to like. By the way, I, w- I just going to say this, okay? You and I have a lot more forehead than when we first met, you know? Yeah, I mean, yeah. I, I'm on a five head now. I'm not saying you I'm quite have a five head, five. but I'm just, letting, I'm just letting you know, we have more forehead than when yeah. we started our relationship. Okay, that's, that's but true. But I'm going to say but something that people are going to feel. I have a lot of other things that less hair and a lot more, a lot more wisdom. <laughs> wow, well, you have more wisdom than me. I, I'm going gonna, I'm gonna to say Joe Biden. I know people are going to like throw up on me and blah, blah. But I want you to stop and look at the job that he's done and look at where the economy is and look at where interest rates are and look at the stock market. People typically vote with their wallet. And so if he doesn't have the health scare uh, predicted in the wealthy on 2000, speak up 2024 predictions, if he doesn't have the health scare and he manages his way through this process, he could end up as the president. Now, maybe. I'll be dead wrong on that. I will say this to completely mortify and embarrass myself. If you asked me that question in 2008, the early part of 2008, let's say it was December 29, 2007, I would have said that the nominees would have been Rudy Giuliani and Hillary Clinton. Okay, so I got that about as wrong as somebody could get it. So I've never been good at this, which is probably why I only lasted 11 days in the White House, Stephen. I'm not really well suited for politics. Yeah, well, you know, but you've had a Hunter Thompson sort of life and God bless you for that. And let, thank you for letting me be along a little part of the ride. Well, well, well at the same, the feeling is mutual. See, see, Stephen Mix is bringing up something here. Before we close out this show, uh, Stephen is saying, I've been saying for a year that Trump will never become president because the system will not allow it. It's interesting, you know, um, you know, Trump was going to say that the system wasn't going to allow him to become president in 2016. Um, and, uh, but the system did allow it, Stephen, but I think this, think, is, this is a different Stephen. This isn't me. I'm no, just... no, 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 I know Stephen Mix. I, thought, I know, I know we're talking about yeah. But I think Stephen Mix is going to be right on this. I think, I think Al, I think Al Capone and Trump have a lot in common. Government has decided that their targets, Al Capone was previously untouchable. No one thought they would ever get him. They got him. Everyone's saying the same thing about Trump. I think he goes down like Al Capone. So, Stephen Mix, hopefully you'll call in if that happens and you'll say, hey, uh, we both discussed it here on Wealthion. Speak up with uh, the mooch. Um, Well, anyway, guys, it's been great to be on. 
Happy New Year. Uh, I'm up here at Wyndham Mountain. It's 55 degrees. So just if you're not a scientist, you can't make snow at 55 degrees, in case you didn't know. So um, we're slogging it up here. A lot of fast food. What are you doing for the New Year, Steve? Uh, not any uh, not any downhill swimming. It sounds like that's what you'd be doing. <laughs> I'm heading on holiday next year. Downhill mudsliding. Yeah. You know, I, I just, I, 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 the reason I don't work this week is I think it's one of the very few weeks you get to think. It's sort of, uh, it's been fun. But this has actually been really enjoyable. Thanks for having me on the last two weeks. Um, if I can come back from time to time, I would really love that. We're, 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 we're having you back. We're having you back. This is Speak Up with Anthony Scaramucci, the Mooch. Uh, please send us emails, send us comments. Uh, if you think we suck, we want to hear that too. If you like us, great. What we what we could do better, we want to hear that as well. And thank you so much today for joining the show. Bye.